The following sermon was delivered on November 22nd, 2020 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America, located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Organizing pastor Dr. Joseph A. Piper Jr. preached this sermon entitled The Gospel for All on 1 Timothy 2, 1-7. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Like people, churches have personalities. I don't know if you children know what a personality is, but you have one. You're a person. And as a person, you have certain ways that you react and behave. And we refer to that in part as personalities. So uh, some children are shy. I don't know any of you that are that way, but uh, some children are shy other children are very brave and, and outward going. And now the same is true with adults. And there's various degrees of personality. But I just want to take uh, the polar opposites of the person who's an introvert and an extrovert. The introvert is a person who's going to be more shy, not talkative, not easy to be around other people. But the extrovert is someone who is uh, always glad to be around people and enjoys the interaction with others, even with strangers. Now, what do I mean when I say that churches have personalities? That's exactly it. Churches are either going to be introverts or extroverts. Now, in people, it's not a bad thing to be one or the other as long as we're balanced. But it's very bad for a church to be introverted. And a lot of churches that are. They're inward-looking. They are ingrown. And they care not not really for the world around them. They don't care for those who walk through their doors. I can tell you one horror tale after another of people who tell me they went to this or that reformed church, a faithful church known for its faithfulness, and not one person spoke to them. They went in, they were there, they worshipped, and they left. And of course, never invited into a home. That's not what God ordains a church to be. There's no place in God's plan for the church that is introverted, that is ingrown and inward looking. God has designed his church to be extroverted, to be outward looking, to be looking not just to itself, but to the world. And that's exactly what Paul is showing us now in these first seven verses of 1 Timothy chapter 2. So this is the second section of Paul's letter to Timothy. In chapter 1, he introduces the whole issue of false teaching. He calls on Timothy to deal with that. He sets before us the goal of all gospel instruction, and that is to uh, come to God uh, with love from uh, a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. Under that end, as we saw last week, he tells us that the gospel minister must be a warrior for the faith, who is involved then in doing war for the Lord Jesus Christ in dealing with false teaching. And he concludes by warning us about the danger of false teachers, and particularly any of us who would harden his conscience and make shipwreck of faith. Now, in chapters 2 and 3, he goes to the next section of this letter, which is basically dealing with the, the structuring of the church, looking at worship, places of authority, and the office bearers in the church. And in this first section, he is actually doing two things. He's dealing with worship, but he's also teaching us what he wants the church to be and to do with respect to the world that is around her. He's calling us as his church to be extroverted and not introverted. 
So based on the purpose and nature of God and the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the church is to pray for and seek the lost. On the basis of the purpose and nature of God and the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the church is to pray for and to seek for the salvation of the lost. So we're going to consider three things. The attitude of the church, um, the church's attitude toward the world, God's concern for the world, and the church's mission to the world. Well, in verses 1 and 2, we have the church's attitude to the world. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. As Paul begins this section, notice he highlights the importance of what he's going to say here. First of all, this could be first in the list he's going to deal with in his next verses and two chapters. But also, this is of great importance to God. And that is how we look at the world around us. He calls us to prayer. And this is how this attitude is going to be expressed. And he calls us to a certain type of praying. I urge that entreaties, prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. Now, these first three words, entreaties, prayers, and petitions, can be used as synonyms. In different places, you'll find one of them used for the whole or a couple of them together. But it seems when Paul puts all three together that he's looking for nuances of uh, emphasis. And let me put it this way then. So the first thing that he mentions here is entreaties. And I think here, this has to do with the fervency of our praying. There's to be an intensity involved in our praying. A solemn seeking of God in our praying. The second term, prayers, refers to the overall scope of praying. He's going to focus here on intercession, but he reminds us that our prayers are to be for all those things enumerated in the Lord's Prayer. The, the praise of God and thanksgiving and confession of sin and, and praying for our physical needs as well and our own sanctification. We put that under prayers more generally. And then this last term, uh, translated here in the New American Standard, petitions has to do particularly in this case with the prayers of intercession. Our praying, as our catechism says, with and for others. Both those in the body of Christ and as we see here, those in the world around us. But notice that we mentioned this some this past Wednesday night, our Thanksgiving service, uh, how he adds this fourth thing. We do this with prayers of thanksgiving. You know, it's a very important concept in, in the, the apostles' theology of prayer. So often as he, as he calls us, as he calls the church to pray, he adds this element of thanksgiving. Let me give you two examples. Philippians chapter 4, where he says, the, Let your gentle spirit be known. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, verse 6, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Colossians chapter 4, again as he calls the church to prayer. Verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well. It's a very important thing in the mind of the apostle, that our praying should always be marked with thanksgiving. Now, of course, that reminds us that we pray with a holy submission, a thankfulness that God will always do what's best 
We'll ask wrongly at times. And God will never grant a wrong request unless it's out of chastening, as he did Israel in the wilderness when they lusted for quail. But God, to his faithful children, is not always going to give us what we ask for. So we pray, like the leper, I know that you are able if you're willing. Now, sometimes our saying that is merely an attempt to get God off the hook, I think, you know. We add that because we don't really believe that he's able, that he's going to. We need to pray with a much greater boldness. So that's the second part of Thanksgiving, and I'll put the two things together, and that's with expectancy and anticipation. Why would Paul add Thanksgiving after all of this list about praying if he doesn't want us to be praying with the realization that God is going to use our prayers to accomplish his purpose? It's part of his holy plan. Unless we pray with thankful hearts, we pray then with an anticipation and expectation. So this is the type of praying uh, to which God calls us. The second thing we see here is for whom we are to pray. And he particularly focuses here on all men and particularly for kings and all in authority. Now, the all men, as we see from verse 7, where Paul talks about being a teacher of the Gentiles, does refer to the people of the world, the people around us. Particularly here, we're talking about the people who are outside the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, those who do not know God as Lord and Savior. We're to pray for them. But then particularly note, he focuses our attention here on those kings and rulers, now, Paul was writing in a day when kings and rulers, for the most part, were antagonistic to church. But he never quit praying for them. And he's here fleshing out what Christ taught in the Sermon on the Mount, that we are to love and pray for our enemies. We're even to pray for those who persecute us. Paul never quit praying for the Neros of the world and the Agrippas and the Felixes and the Festuses, who he suffered often at their hands. And yet he reminds us that we're to pray for all types of people, and particularly we are to pray for rulers. And that's why in our worship service, we always pray for those who rule over us. It is an injunction given to us by uh, the Lord Jesus Christ through here, the Apostle Paul. And then for what are we to pray as we come with this urgent petitions and prayers and intercessions for all men? and particularly those in authority, that we may lead, verse 2, a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Now, here we have become a bit inward-looking. What Paul is saying here is that the church needs stability in order to do the work that God has entrusted to her. And so he is instructing us then that we pray for the magistrate, that the magistrate will do that which God has ordained and construct laws and enforce those laws for the safety and protection of the church. God is the one who holds the heart of the king in his hand and directs it as a channel of water. Xi in China, whoever becomes the president of the United States, the worst dictator in all the face of the earth, none of them can do anything other than what God pleases, what God ordains. And thus, even when they have an intention of doing greater harm to his people, he often will restrain them. Sometimes, as Peter says, judgment begins in the household of God. 
And God's chastening his church and he's purifying us and making us a more glorious bride for Christ. But oftentimes he'll hear our prayers. And so what we see that we are to pray for is the church, the, the, the government will do its role, that we will have tranquil and quiet lives. We're tranquil. Well, you children have seen a storm on the lake or the, or the gulf or the ocean. And the waves are tumultuous and the towering over the boats. And that's a turbid sea. The tranquil sea is a sea that is as smooth as glass. And that's the kind of life that we're to pray for, for the church. Now, we're going to have the tumult. The Bible warns us. But we want God to use the government to create this environment for us that we might then live um, in gentleness, in quietness, um, able then to go about our task in serving God. It's interesting, uh, Paul relates this idea of living quietly to fulfilling our responsibilities in 1 Thessalonians 4. Uh, we urge you, brethren, to ex- excel still more, verse 11, and to make your ambition to lead a quiet life, same word, and attend to your own business. Work with your hands as we have commanded you. And then in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11, For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. No such persons. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion eat their own bread. You see, Paul is teaching us to pray that we'll have this tranquilness so that we then can go about our business as Christians and as the church. I'm reminded of what uh, Jeremiah had to write to the uh, exiles when false prophets were were telling them that uh, everybody's going to get back to Jerusalem just really quickly. And and Jeremiah uh, chapter 29, he He says to the church in exile, um, verse 5, Build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives, become fathers of sons. Interesting, you know, so many people talk about, well, maybe we shouldn't have children today. It's going to be a rough day to raise children. That's not what the Bible says. Here they are in exile. Take wives and become fathers of sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there. And do not decrease. Now notice this, verse 7. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, and that's our word peace, in its peace you will have peace. See, God teaches us to pray for the government, to pray for those around us that we as Christians and as the church can live this life of some tranquility a life of peace, so we can quietly go about our callings, particularly marked then by two other things, that we can do this in all godliness and dignity. The word godliness is, is a primary word used by Paul in the pastoral epistles for godly religion, for piety, that our lives might be marked out uh, to those around us, that we are people who walk according to another master, and we love him and live by him. And the word dignity, it's used a couple of times with respect to qualifications of, of those in the church. And the best way, I think, to translate this word, although it got outlawed in the denomination, is gravity, gravitas. To live with a certain dignity and solemnity. Joy, yes, gravity doesn't in any way rule out joy. But a consciousness that we, we live under a glorious king who has called us to 
serve him. And so this is what we're to pray for and for whom we are to pray and how we're to go about praying for uh, these people and for ourselves in, in regard to that. Now, as you think about these types of prayer, I want you to realize that what Paul's teaching us here is how we should be praying, how we should be praying in our private prayers. That we need to develop the capacity to, to pray with fervency. And this is really expounded for us quite well in larger catechisms, exposition of the Lord's Prayer. With fervency and faith and solemnity. And we're to pray for all of the things laid out in the Lord's Prayer. Every day in our prayers. All these things should mark our prayers. And then we should be praying for one another. And for those in the world around us. As I've said before to some of you in the prayer meeting, we need, each of us needs to be praying particularly for individual unconverted people. And praying for them regularly that God will give us opportunities to speak to them. Praying as well as we go out of the house in the morning that God will bring us into contact with those that we can say something to them in terms of the greatness of God or with respect to the gospel. Now, the same is true of family prayers. As we pray together as husbands and wives and as parents and children, uh, these, all of these things apply. But note particularly, Paul is speaking out of the church corporately. And thus, in our corporate worship, all this must be a part of our praying. All these aspects of prayer and the fervency and intensity of prayer and the intercessory nature of prayer. But it also should be worked out in the church's prayer meeting. Because the God has called us to come together as well to pray. In Romans chapter 15, Paul exhorts the church in verse 30. I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me. This is all in the plural. In your and y'all's prayers to God for me. You all... Strive together with me in y'all's prayers to God for me. You see what he's saying there? He's writing to the church that the church is to be joining together in praying for the ministry of the Apostle Paul. That was a mark of the church from day one. In Acts chapter one, after the ascension, the eleven returned then to the upper room where the church is assembled for a prayer meeting. And we read in verse 14, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Where was the church? What was the church doing on the morning of Pentecost? They were in that upper room. They were praying the promise that, that Christ gave them that he was going to send his Holy Spirit. And as they prayed that promise out of the prayer meeting, the Spirit came down upon the church. You see, this is lost in our day. But the church's prayer meeting is essential to any vibrant spiritual life and gospel success. And so it's so sad then, as we look around and we look at, and it's common in all places, that half the congregation's back for Sunday night worship and a handful will be at a prayer meeting. And we wonder why God is not blessing his church when we can't take the time out of our lives to come and pray in the very way that he instructs us here for the very things he tells us to pray for. If he tells us to pray for them, what does he say? You pray according to my will, I'm going to do what? I'm going to answer it. Do you believe that? 
As I said to those today, as we begin to interview people for membership, that one of the marks of this church from day one will be the prayer meeting. And that we expect, knowing that it's a midweek thing and people cannot come every week, there'll be times in their lives, some because of distance or age or health, uh, other things will come along. But we want a commitment, a commitment to be a part of the prayer meeting. Because that's essential to life of this congregation. And it's the commandment of God to us here. So he says in the very first place that our attitude to the world is going to be marked out by how we pray. How we pray together. Yes, privately, in family, particularly how we pray together as a church. It's only then that we will see the kingdom come. Now, the foundation of the church's attitude is God's concern for the world in verses 3 through 6. Verse 3 begins with the most remarkable statement. This, pointing back to how we're to pray for the world, is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. Notice that little phrase, good and acceptable. Paul there is uh, quoting uh, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 12. Um, where he uh, writes in verse 28, be careful to listen to all these words which I command you. So this is do God's will. All right, keep the commandments that it may be well with you and your sons after you forever. For you will be doing what is good and right. And the Greek translation says what is good and acceptable in the sight of God your Savior. So what he's saying here, just as it's good and acceptable, it's right in God's eyes to obey his commandments and to walk according to them. He says it's good and acceptable. It's God's will. It's right in God's eyes that we pray like this, that it marks our lives as Christians and it marks our life as a congregation. This, he says, is good and acceptable in the sight of God. And notice once again, we saw this back in chapter one, verse one. He refers to God as our Savior. In the New Testament, that is a very rare attribute of the Father. And it's the Father. Remember how you read the Bible. If, in fact, uh, the name God is used, other members of the Godhead are mentioned, as we find here in the next verse, then we're talking about the Father. Uh, And Paul is the one that focuses here on God the Father as Savior because he is the Savior of the world, as we're going to see. It is not just the concern of God the Son. It's not just the work of God the Spirit. It is the work of God the Father. It's the Savior of sinners. If you're saved tonight, it's because God the Father was involved in your salvation. And it's a glorious way to think about God because sometimes the Father can seem distant from us. But He's also God the Savior. Now, Paul unpacks that by telling us something of God's purpose and something about God's nature and then about the person and work of Christ. So it's a good acceptable to pray in this way before God our Savior. Why? Because he desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. What a remarkable statement. This God, the transcendent and holy God, the maker of heaven, earth, the sea, and all that is in them, sovereign and holy, this God desires the salvation of men. I think it was Edwards who said that, um, that justice was God's strange work and grace and salvation. That's God's, uh, it's God's normal work. 
Sometimes as reformed people, uh, we think about uh, mm, election being small and pitiful. No! God is saving the world. He's gathering men from every tribe and tongue and language that we read in Revelation. And it's God's will that men come to him. And God's calling men and women, boys and girls, everywhere under the voice of the gospel. Repent. Come to Christ. Come to me. Believe in me. If it's God's will, then what should be our will for those around us? But it's also according to God's nature. Paul says that, um, well, notice he desires all men to be saved. Notice that salvation is tied into coming to the knowledge of truth. We see now the, the content nature of the gospel. That's why we emphasize that saving faith must begin with knowledge. And this truth is, is the truth of who God is and who we are and what Christ has done and how one may be saved through repentance and faith. And this word, to when he says to come to the knowledge, it, it's not just a bare intellectual. It's, it's a recognition. It's an ownership of these truths. It's God's will that people are saved by coming to the knowledge of the truth. So again, you see, this is why we're committed to Textual expository preaching. It's why in our evangelism, we're not going to go out there and use some little ditty. We want people to understand who God is and who we are. And the lostness of man's condition apart from God and the glorious things that God's done for us in Christ. So that's God's purpose. And then notice as well what he says about God's nature. He says that there is one God. Now, he's not proving here monotheism over against polytheism, one God over against many false gods. No, he's talking about what it means because God is one. That means he's the God of the world. He's the God of all. He's sovereign over all of the nations. Remember how Paul uses that in his defense in Athens at the Areopagus in Acts chapter 17 as he wants them to come to know who the true God is he then refers to God as the creator and, and the owner. And so uh, he says in verse 24, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things, he made from one Man, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitations, that they would seek God. He is the God of all. He is the Lord of the universe. He is the master of all people. And all shall either bow before him in the ways appointed in repentance and faith, or all shall come under his Damnation. Because he is the God of all, who desires the salvation of all men, all types of men, the most wicked of men, he then gave the world to his son as an inheritance. As his reward, he said, ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. Which leads to the third ground here that shows us God's concern for the world, and that is the person and work of the Savior. Not only is there one God... 
But there's one mediator, Paul says, between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. Now he sets the Savior before us as the mediator. Boys and girls, a mediator is, is a go-between. If, if you were having an argument with your brother or your sister and, and your parent would come along and they would take the two of you and they would seek to reconcile you and to get your problem worked out. Now, we've got a problem with God, but it's not his fault. It's our fault. I better say God has a problem with us. He's holy and we're sinners. No, so we need someone as well to step between us, this mediator to reconcile us to God. And just as God is one, there's only one mediator then to make us right with God. This is what our Savior says in John 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. On our visits a couple of Saturdays ago, this young lady uh, who says she believes in Christ. But she says, you know, every religion, as long as people are sincere, it doesn't matter what they believe. It does matter. Because Christ said... No man can come to the Father but by me. That's what Paul says here. There's but one mediator to come to this one true God. And notice the focus on his humanity. There is one mediator, man. Now, in the, in the New American Standard, the is put there, but I think the is left out deliberately. He's not one man among many. He is a man. He is one with a human nature. Which is exactly what we need. We need one like us to take our place before God. To stand between us and God. An angel can't mediate. This was Job's great longing. Oh, for a mediator, someone, an arbitrator to stand between me and God. And God has provided that in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in his humanity. And thus, when Paul talks about his mediatorship, he often focuses on his humanity. But notice, never at expense of the deity. He then gives us again both of the titles of the Savior, the man Christ Jesus, the anointed prophet, priest, and king, God incarnate, Jehovah, who's come to save his people. The God-man is the mediator. That's his person. And then in verse 6, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony given at the proper time. The word ransom here has the root in it that we had in our Verse for meditation, when Christ said that he came not to be served, but to serve and give himself as a ransom for many. But it has a prefix, and it means a ransom in the place of. There's now an emphasis here on what we call the substitutionary nature of the atonement. Christ offering himself as the God-man in the place of his people, in the place of sinners. To atone for our sin and to buy us back to God and remove from us the guilt. And at that Christ on the cross, a testimony was given that God is interested in saving sinners. At that proper time, there and now as the gospels preached at all times, but particularly at the proper time, God was declaring what he said to Abram in our Old Testament reading. That through Abram, God was going to bless the nation. So in the Old Covenant, God focused on a particular people to make them the vehicles of uh, the communication of his word, a preservation of his truth. Uh, But in the fullness of time, he sent forth that his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to bring then unto himself sinners from every tribe and tongue 
nation of the earth. The sinning of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ is the ransom, is God's testimony at the proper time now that the gospel kingdom is wide open. God is desiring the salvation of all men. What then should be our desire as a congregation? What is your desire as a Christian? Should not one of your great desires be the glorification of God through the salvation of men? Women, people around us, people under the ends of the earth. Oh, that we would have God's concern for the world, that we would have God's passion for the conversion of the lost. Paul then teaches us in the third place, the church's mission on the basis of this. Our attitude is to be an attitude expressed in prayer. We're praying for all types of men from every background. And by the way, when he says that Christ is a ransom for all, he's talking here about all kinds of people, no longer just Jews, but Gentiles and, and rulers and all those for whom Christ would die. As it says in, in Matthew 12, he was a ransom for many. But now we see that uh, we have a responsibility. And Paul expresses this. So when he, when he thinks of the testimony... Uh, at the proper time of Christ as the ransom, he says, for this, for this testimony, in other words, for this testimony, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now notice his emphasis here in the middle on his apostleship. Paul often was forced to assert his apostleship because of the divine authority that's entailed in that. And there was constantly people attacking his apostleship and trying to deny his apostleship. And thus, particularly with respect to the mission to the Gentiles, he must assert that he's been appointed an apostle by God as he does back in chapter 1, verse 1. Notice how he enforces that, where he says, uh, I am telling the truth. And in the uh, New King James, I like the text there, I'm telling the truth in Christ. He's calling Christ to be a witness that he is telling the truth. And then he further says, I'm not lying. Now, what's he trying to convince the people of? He's been an apostle sent to teach the Gentiles in faith and truth. Right back to this matter of calling them to faith in Christ on the basis of the truth of the gospel. That was his mission. But notice that before apostle, this word he uses, he says, I am a preacher. The word means herald. It is a very particular word that's uh, used then with the work of preaching as that is revealed in Scripture and tells us a great deal. The herald was the authoritative spokesman for the great authority. And what Paul is saying here is that the preacher is God's authoritative spokesman. Preaching then, as I define it, is the public authoritative proclamation of the word of God by the man that God has appointed. Now, what is, and I want you to get that definition. It's very important. The public authoritative proclamation of the word of God by the man that God's appointed. But notice what Paul is doing. He's an apostle, and that office is going to pass away. But he puts preacher first, because that's the office now that Christ has appointed for the church. To be this means now of proclaiming the gospel and teaching the Gentiles and the world around us the way of faith and truth. We get to the purpose of the church, the gathering and perfecting of the saints.
That's God's concern. It's to be expressed in our prayers. It's to be expressed then in our commitment to this mission that's spelled out by the Apostle Paul. Note here that we have a very sound biblical argument for what's called the free offer of the gospel. Just because we're committed to the Reformed faith and to election and to the nature of Christ's atonement being for his people, our tongues are not silenced. Paul, the greatest theologian of election, of particular redemption, says, I've been appointed a preacher to teach faith and truth to the Gentiles. He was not hindered, nor should we be. We don't know whom God has chosen. His will is general in terms of he wants men and women, boys and girls to be saved. And thus we take that gospel message and we pray for those people. Even the most wicked, we don't rule them out. Remember, God saved Manasseh. God saved Saul of Tarsus. God saves sinners. God loves us and he loves to allow us to promiscuously and freely call on men and women to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so on the basis then of the purpose and nature of God, the person and work of Christ, he calls us tonight to pray for and to seek for the conversion of the lost. May we repent of our backwardness and laziness with respect to this. And and we be stirred up individually. And we be stirred up as a congregation. May it always be the mark of God amongst us. Yes, we want to grow. We want to be godly. In fact, people are only going to be converted when we are godly. What is it that that, uh, Paul says to the Colossians that... um, You'd be ready to give an answer. And Peter says, live in such a way they'll ask you for the faith that's in you. So we do want to grow. And we will emphasize discipleship. But we've got those two things always before us. The gathering and the perfecting of God's elect. May he bless us unto that end. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.